0: This special Clever Extra is brought to you by Be Original Americas.
1: I believe that actually architects have the power to imagine something is not there. And this creates in the audience the moment, what if, which is a fundamental one actually because creates an audience that at that second, at that moment, believes that that could be a reality and therefore the reality becomes wanted.
0: Hey everyone, I'm Jamie Derringer. I'm Amy
2: Devers, and this is Clever. And this is a special episode because this Clever Extra was taped live at a Be Original Americas event in Los Angeles. Be Original Americas is an organization dedicated to educating people about the ethical, environmental, and economic importance of original design. Their goal is to spread the word about how good design makes a difference in our lives. And in this special episode, instead of interviewing a single person about their life and work, we did six lightning-round
0: mini-interviews with leading professionals from different disciplines, all on the central topic of originality. The special guests of the evening were Barbara Boza of Gensler, Greg Bookbinder of Emico, Elena Manfredini of Atelier Manfredini, Brett Englander of Cerno, Amanda Dameron of Tastemade, and Donna Semeraro of Simply.
3: So,
2: without further
0: ado... Let's do it.
4: Okay, I'm Greg Buckbinder. I'm CEO of Emico. The office is in Hanover, Pennsylvania, and I commute from Long Beach, California. <laughs> <laughs> and why do you do what you do? I have a real love for the environment, and all of our chairs are made from some kind of waste.
0: So let's talk about original design in terms of furniture. So how is original design and authentic voices important to the growth and ecosystem of your industry?
4: Well, let me talk about how it's important to emico. Design and originality and authenticity at Emeco. it's not about style. It's about coming up with innovative solutions to solve problems. It's, you know, when we started in, in 1944, the U.S. Navy had a big problem. Furniture above aboard ships, they needed something that was lightweight, something that was uh, non-corrosive, something that was fireproof, and something that the big burly sailors couldn't tear apart. And they came to Emeco, and at that time, Emiko developed an extraordinary 77-step process to make these chairs, and they used aluminum. At the time, there was a shortage of aluminum, and Americans in the war felt patriotic, and they had scrap drives, and they would get old, you know recycled aluminum, and they made this chair out of 80% recycled aluminum, and it was tested to last 150 years. I mean, it was, it's the ultimate in sustainability. It was so good that the Navy used it for all their warships, for aircraft carriers, for submarines, for destroyers. They even used it for the Navy hospitals and the prisons. So the impact it had on Emigo was, from a growth standpoint, was huge. There's train tracks that run into the factory, and they load up 10,000 chairs at a time, the trains would take the chairs to the shipyards to fit out these ships. So it was, uh, innovation for Emico was extraordinary. So now this Navy chair, it's, this year it's his 75th birthday. And it's still, after 75 years, if you could think about that for a product, that not only is appropriate at the time, but it's appropriate today. I mean, it's used still in Navy ships, still in prisons, but it's also used in the most chic martini bars and hotels. And, you know, it's just this extraordinary product. For Emeco, original design is durability, it's purposeful use of the chair, usability, and a concern for the environment. And I think original design to us, it, it stands the test of time.
0: Good answer. So in thinking about materials and your love for sustainability and, and recycling products, you also are doing some innovations in that area in expanding your collection. So can you talk a little bit about what you're currently doing at Emaco? I know you have a partnership with Coca-Cola and some other um, designers yeah. and you're using some other materials. Yeah.
4: Well, you know, that's another great example um, where Coca-Cola approached Emico and they had a big problem. And the problem was These plastic bottles, it's the very best thing to deliver beverages in. It's the most economical, glass breaks, and it works, but millions and millions and millions of these bottles are ending up in the oceans and landfill, and they know they have to do something about it. So they came to us and they said, would you be interested in working on this project? And I mean, that's near and dear to my heart, trying to solve the problem of keeping plastic out of the ocean. We worked on this, and we worked for about four years. We worked with material scientists, we worked with engineers, and we were able to upcycle waste plastic bottles and create an innovative material that we can make a structurally sound chair. So now we're using every year about 10 million bottles out of the landfill. We're just ECO. but more importantly, Our industry, the furniture industry, or just the whole design industry, we see this material being used scads of different places now. Lighting companies are using it, accessory companies, but even bigger than that, we're influencing other industries. We're having, we get calls from Adidas, from Volvo, from Timberline, so it's really made a big impact and that's, we're really proud of that.
2: You should be proud of that. That's amazing. So let's talk about knockoffs because I know that um, you've had some success dealing with knockoffs. Uh, First, I want to know what's the temperature lately? Are knockoffs on the rise or on the decline?
4: I would say they're on the rise. I think the catalyst for that is e-commerce and the Internet. It allows people to operate anywhere in the world and really stay pretty hidden and consumers, they, they search for product and they're just not aware of what they're getting. So I think it's probably a catalyst for more knockoffs. But having said that, in the United States, um, we've been very successful. We're very aggressive with our intellectual property and we litigate when we have to. It's not what we want to do because it takes our time, energy and money away from developing new products and working with designers To doing stuff that we don't like to do. But everybody that we've litigated against, we've won. So we've we've been very successful. But even better than that, and and Beth brought this up, is the B original groups have now gone in and trained customs. I got an email from a customs officer that said, Dear Mr. Buckbinder, attach her some photographs. Can you please look at that and, and let us know if these infringe upon your chairs. open them up, and of course they did, and I send back, I said, you know, according to our recordation, this number and this and this, they do, they seize the container, and that's it. There's no legal costs. it's fast, it's easy, and I usually get an email back from the offending company saying, oh, there's been a mistake that's happened, can you just let customs know this won't happen again, and it's so nice because... You, you just you can you're on the other end of things. You you just you can laugh, and and um, it's been the single best thing that we've uh, we've done.
2: That's great. We love hearing the success stories. All right. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks, you. Greg. <laughs> Elena.
1: I am Elena Manfredini. I live in Los Angeles, but from my accent, you can understand I'm Italian, but I've been in LA for 20 years. I am an architect and an educator. So I have my own practice at Elena Manfredini. We work as architects and designers with many companies and many clients. And also I run a school at CYARC. Whoever here is an architect might know it's in downtown Los Angeles, been teaching there for 16 years, and now I'm the chair of the graduate program. The reason I do that because I think uh, teaching is actually the most rewarding of any profession you could have, because you get to share uh, with like-minded people your passions, your ideas. And students are phenomenal, talented, energetic, bold, uh, creative, original. Because we have fantastic students, and they share with me a journey. I think my practice would not be where it is without students that I've been taught, teaching to practice and teaching are part of the same powerful endeavor. I believe what I teach and I try to do what I teach in my practice, which is a challenge that I have to rise up every single day. so in terms of both
0: architecture and education, how are original design and authentic voices important to the growth and ecosystem of both of those industries?
1: Mm, I want to say a couple of things. The first one. I was teaching this morning about the idea of knowledge in relationship to power. There are a few, I'm borrowing from philosophers um, that say knowledge is power, and then somebody else says power is knowledge. What does that mean? Uh, It means that yes, if you have knowledge, for instance, if I know how to invest in stock market, that gives me power to enable my life, the life of the people next to me to raise the level and somehow gain something. On the other end, when well, what happens when Bacon says that power is knowledge? Not only it creates a circle, it also says that if you are in power, you create knowledge, meaning that you actually change the history of things. Not always uh, is the knowledge that is the first moment of, of uh, improvement of society. Sometimes it's actually the evident power of doing something that creates a knowledge. It creates a belief and uh, a follower about what you want to do. I think the most famous architects in history are actually architects that wrote. If you look at the body of work of Palladio, probably he would not be as famous as he is without having written books or Ledoux. He was the architect of the king after the French Revolution, he could not build anymore. He just could teach and write, and actually that made him probably the most famous utopian architect on the history of um, architecture, which means that I think the originality and how you express ideas goes through, first of all, uh, making things that are original but also writing those ideas that can be taught and can be spread out. Um, And that power of teaching and knowledge, I think, is a fundamental one to create new things. Within education uh, and architecture in general, I think architects have, uh, and designers in general, even artists, they have something a bit special. They imagine things that are not there, which is politically strong, if you think about it, because we look around and it's a lot of sameness. I mean, and we tend to believe that that's, as much as we can do or as much as we can have. The sameness of the landscape of architecture and the sameness of the landscape of design seems to be the one that we should understand as being what the industry is and what there is out there. I believe that actually architects have the power to imagine something that's not there, and this creates in the audience the moment, what if? Which is a fundamental one, actually, because it creates an audience that at that second, at that moment, believes that that could be a reality, and therefore the reality becomes wanted. And you create an audience, and that something else happens. And I think that original idea is what creates a desire for that, and things then happen. So the seed of originality and creativity, I think, is what liberates from totalitarian system in general in history. That's a fantastic answer. <laughs> Thank you.
0: <laughs> I do want to talk about innovation, because you did mention about the what if. What, what is happening in your world, in your practice, that kind of... Is that what?
1: Lately, I am obsessed with imagination and the fact that we have tools that allow for that imagination to be um, so close to us I mean we've never been so connected we've never been so dependent from social media we're all in our phones which you can see it as a horrible thing and and on the other hand I think it's a phenomenal opportunity I prefer always to steer change than try to go back to something that was before I mean the changes ah. happen is everywhere yes. I think steering this innovation to me is a fundamental excitement I see architects designing augmented reality apps my office, we've been doing this for two years and I am completely embedded in this, maybe even too much obsessed about it. But the idea that you can embed imaginary content in objects, create a narrative through the things that are maybe ephemeral and dreamlike and and actually could participate in that uh, creation of a fantasy as a fundamental one. In my office right now we're working mainly on facade of buildings. We're building eight facades Uh, And eight buildings ground up in West Hollywood, and every facade has is an up. And so not only this becomes a background of of life, but also becomes a place of imagination. So you can imagine what is out there, and then something else get overlaid on top of it through our media. So I think that I think is part of what there is now. I'm not sure I can completely tell you that's the innovation of the future. I think this is what I uh, what keeps me smiling when I go to my office. (laughs) How about that?
2: That is very exciting. How can the different design industries align to share resources and tactics to educate people about the power of the what-if, the power of the authentic, attribution, and protection of original work?
1: I think people are attracted to passion, novelty, innovation, whether or not you educate them. I think there, is something, there are weak forces and strong forces. The weak forces are laws. Okay. So you make laws and those allow you to stop the custom that or that. Or, you know, we all act because there are weak laws that tells us how we have to operate. Then there are the strong laws. I fall in love. Mm -hmm. I want that piece of food. I have this passion for this design. I'm a dreamer and this is what I, so I am the second person, as you can imagine from my impetus. I truly believe that, yes, I'm an educator. But there is nothing worse than being so sure about what you believe in. There is not—you are never so dangerous as when you are completely sure of what you are doing. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the major escape to uh, the common copies is actually to let that kind of strong forces take place in your life and mobilitate this.
2: Ah, focus on the strong—the love. Design is for lovers.
1: Sure.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Elena. Wow. Thank you.
5: My name is Brett Englander. I'm from Laguna Beach, California. I own Serno uh, with my business partner, who's somewhere in the audience, Nick Sheridan, uh, and another partner, Daniel Walkholder. We started Serno ten years ago. It's a modern lighting company why we do it. Nick and I have been best friends since we were in kindergarten and the third partner since about middle school. And the core of that friendship was always this passion for designing and building things. There was definitely no foresight that we would have started a company 10 years after graduating from college, but it worked out that way and with kind of complementary skill sets and all of us kind of having a different focus it is the grown-up version of what we were doing as kids. And we just, yeah, that passion for design and building things is still very core to CERNO.
2: I love it. Okay, so how is original design and authentic voices important to the growth and ecosystem of your industry?
5: I think it's, yeah, it's the lifeblood of the ecosystem. Uh, Originality and innovation is kind of our greatest tool and also our greatest weapon in combating the knockoffs and kind of the lower-cost competition, and that's not to say design shouldn't be within reach, Um, but as it relates to knockoffs, there's no better tool than to continually innovate. I mean, it's great to hear Greg have such success on the litigating front. We haven't. Um, We've gotten knocked off a lot, and, um, you know, it usually ends with a cease and desist. But if you keep innovating, you can hopefully stay ahead of it. I also think, you know, there's a lot of just on the education side, there's a lot of inherent challenges when you decide to manufacture in the United States. I mean, our labor is a lot more expensive, the labor laws are a lot more rigorous, the environmental regulations. So our prices are inherently going to be more expensive, but there's a lot of kind of repercussions and bad things that come from when products like ours become a commodity and then it just flows down to the lowest cost producer. And when that happens, I mean, what what type of ethical complications and, you know, poor environments for people to work in. And then, yeah, the ultimate cost is you get this really poorly made product that just facilitates this culture of careless consumerism where you buy things that are going to last for maybe a year and then they disappear into the landfill, and then hopefully Greg makes them into a chair.
2: <laughs> All right. Speaking of innovation, what new and exciting things are happening in the lighting industry that you think the public needs to know about?
5: What really excites me is a lot of the technology, and I'm very wary of technology. I think there are as many benefits as there are risks. Um, you, and It's our job as designers and producers of objects to understand what things are meant to do and the purpose they serve. So if it's a chair, does it need to be weighing you and communicating with your phone and you know giving a body mass index reading, or can it just be a chair? If a light is meant to provide ambient light, can it just be a light? Does it need to be connected and communicated? That's not to say on the technology side there's a lot of really good things. I really like what's going on as far as intelligent lighting, to make them more energy efficient, to communicate with a bigger system that will ultimately reduce our dependency and also just our consumption of natural resources. I think that's really, really exciting. There's a lot more mindfulness with lighting and technology, as in all the architects in the room and designers know this, but as it relates to how man made things interact with the natural environment. So just uh, specifically like all the dark sky compliance things that are going on and how we're making light fixtures more intelligent. So they do, I mean, I, I think most of it's really well intended. I think some of it's a little bit strict. I, I just have this mental picture because Colorado is getting pretty strict with dark sky compliance of like a farm in the middle of nowhere with one sconce on the wall pointing to the sky, and is that really going to impact the, you know, path of migratory birds? I'm not sure if it will, Um, but I, I think it is, for the most part, really well intended. And then, as far as technology, there's really exciting things as it relates to circadian rhythm and sleep going on and just making sure that color temperatures are sinking with people's patterns as far as when they should be waking, you know, having a cooler temperature and when they're going to bed and having a warmer temperature. And I think that's very important. I mean, we all know that sleep is kind of the greatest opportunity to restore wellness and be healthy. And then I I was going through this exercise with my sales manager, uh, I think two weeks ago, and we were looking at just all of our projects over the last six months, and there were a ton of healthcare facilities. And this is less... Um, about technology, but I think it's really exciting to see this move away from kind of the ultra-sterile and really cool, more institutional environments that we went to to for healthcare as growing up and seeing them actually incorporate um, modern and new design as well as warmer temperatures and just really caring, having a more of an empathy for what it feels like to go into a warm well-designed space versus this kind of freaky, you know, stereotypical doctor's office.
2: Yeah, it's long overdue. I'm excited that that's happening.
0: I want to ask you because as a company who's about 10 years old, you as a company grew up at the time of the internet boom and the rise of social media. And I'd love to know a little bit more about the impact of that on you as a company in terms of like, how positive it was, but is there also any negativity that comes out of that in terms of like original design, or um, how does that affect you as a company?
5: No major negatives. We absolutely only have known in my professional life, the internet and social media. I think it gives you, there's a lot more transparency um, because you can see what your customers are doing. When you dig into the analytics, you can really understand who your customers are. And then as it relates to the social media, then you start tailoring your messaging specific to the people that you know you're reaching. So for the most part, I think it's been really positive. It's created on the sales side of things um, that all the manufacturers in the room can probably relate to, a channel nightmare just because all of these historical just retailers are now working with the trade and you know, creates a lot of conflict uh, with our reps and everyone else. So that part of it could be seen as a negative. But I think as it relates to originality, we now have so many ways to reach customers that we couldn't before, whether it's you know, YouTube or Instagram, all the various social media, then share our story. So I think for the most part, it's been a positive.
2: Thank you, Brett. Thank you.
3: Thank you. I'm Amanda Dameron. I work in Santa Monica. I am the head of content for Tastemade, which is a video media company. I have been fortunate in my career to be a storyteller. I have been extra fortunate to be a storyteller around design and art and architecture Most of my career has been spent in mediums like print, and then, of course, with the advent of digital, that too. And so this new enterprise of the last year and a half is video only. And so I do what I do because I care about creating primary source materials for people. I care about creating resources for curious people that hunger for more. I care about making sure that the stories that I do tell are rooted in something lasting and impactful.
2: Oh, thank
3: you. You're (laughs) welcome.
2: (laughs) How is original design and authentic voices important to the growth and ecosystem of your industry?
3: Well, there have never been more tools or more images or more ideas available to us than ever before in human history. And the truth is, is that with a glut of this kind, a lot of it is a mile wide, an inch deep, not really rooted in anything other than ephemeral nothingness, and a lot of it is just simply untrue. And so... I even forget the question because I like went down the rabbit hole of just how Fake much news. stuff <laughs> yeah. is out there, and and the point of creating something that counteracts that, yeah. that kind of ephemeral quality that just washes over us daily.
2: I liken it to light pollution, noise pollution, and Very just pollution. So. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. But We're something buried. that that can have roots, that can grow, and that can inspire somebody.
3: Yeah, and that you can find again, hopefully, and and really rely upon an authentic source that you trust the methodology with which it was crafted. And that can be anything from an object to a story. I think that's essential. And so when it comes down to the messaging of what authentic design means, and when I talk about what I do, I'm talking to a young audience of people that they will rely upon video to tell them most things. The respect for what things are and what they are made of and where they came from informs the decision-making that comes into what they spend their money on. And so if you educate people about what it means to have, again, sound materials and methodologies, then they understand the values of these objects that surround us. Without it, without those narratives. We live in a flattened world where we're looking at imagery all the time, and you cannot assign value by looking at a flat image. You need dimension, you need context. I really take it very seriously that the job that I have is to use the moving medium to deliver this context, this contextual information, so that we can get away from this consumer reality where we just throw things away.
2: Hallelujah. Are there any innovations or exciting things that, that are happening in your industry that pertain to crafting a
3: narrative,
2: design storytelling, or video production that you think the public needs to know about?
3: One thing I want to remind people is that there's a tendency when there's a great wave and movement of different technologies that exist that inspire us or, or teach us or entertain us to think that the new generation is only interested in the ephemeral or the fluff And I believe that um, wholeheartedly, because in this role that I have now, I have more access than ever before to insights into what a humongous group of people, how they behave, how they interact, how they react, what they really think. I just want to remind everybody that young people care about these things that we care about and so they hunger for these stories they hunger for this contextual information um, they hunger for the primary source materials and so the more um, opportunity that be original or events like this can create where we can have these kinds of conversations um, I think it's incredibly important because the easiest thing in the world is to say that who cares that these kids today they don't care they do care they do care, and they care about impactful decision-making. They care about these things. So it's it's upon all of us to make sure that there's stuff out there for them to to seize upon.
0: So as media, how do you use this voice to educate? What are some types of things that you do or that you think the industry in general should do to educate the general public?
3: Yeah. So when we talk about videos that exist for home and design the easiest and most basic thing in the world is to be like, look at this room. Now buy all new stuff, new room. And that's never been something that I was interested in making, whether it was video or not. I never want to put forth the notion of just buy new stuff and then you've got a new life. It's really about drilling into the um, the process by which things are made. Um, it's demystifying tools, It's, you know, giving people more contextual information about the materiality of things. I mean, really breaking things down. So it's not so much the buy this and then you're happy. It's can you imagine what could be possible if you just took the moment to realize you can make this or you can do this or these are the components and this is how they work together. And these these kind of like foundational moments really inform creative decision making later. So... I guess the best way I can say it is instead of just using tricks of the camera, I'm really interested in in really breaking down process and giving people an understanding of a mastery of skill over technique.
2: Thank you, Amanda.
6: Thank you. Hi there. Uh, I'm Donna, Donna Semerara from... (laughs) founder and um, designer of Semply. We designed barware, that's the short story. We're maybe famous for a spinning wine glass that then you've probably seen other people knock off. So we're probably like the smallest company here that still manages to to get knocked off. Um, so uh, our office, yeah, that's okay. Uh, our office is just around the corner. We're on Venice and La Cienega. Our neighbors right here. And what else? why do you do what you do? Well, that's a tricky one. I think it's just because I can't really do anything else. I'm. I know that feeling. Like. <laughs> well, it is. Like I, I, am a designer. You know, when you're a designer, you are a designer. You're not. You don't work as a designer. I've worked as a designer uh-huh, uh, for 15 years, and it's been. I've been super lucky because I've only worked as a designer. I finished school in Florence. I got a job in Sweden at a car company or a car sub-tier. So we designed interiors for Volvo, Volkswagen, blah, blah, blah. Moved here to the U.S. and did interior design at HBA. And know it's a friendly competitor of Gensler. And after that, I did lighting. And after that, I kind of got bored and just wanted to do my own thing. And I thought... 2010, that's a great year to start your own business. <laughs> uh, so I started simply with three products, one spinning glass, wooden tray that some Amish people made for me, and a coaster.
0: So for you, in product design, how are original design and authentic voices important to the growth and ecosystem of your industry?
6: I think it's its a little bit what Brett said. It's, it's everything. Like, if... Especially when you're small assembly, you, you have to be ahead. You have to be you have to be ahead of everyone else. If you if you stop and sneeze, people catch up, and it seems scary, but that that's amazing because nobody else can think what what you what you want to think. Because if if you're a designer that are able to innovate, and I guess if you're a good designer, that's what we do then you're always going to be ahead. And then people never catch up. They'll catch up on your old stuff, but especially here in the U.S., people want, what's new? What's next? What's your new thing? So, yeah, I, th- I think it's everything. But I, I think it's it's so important, and especially when you're a small company. Like, you have the edge. We're so advanced of anyone else that wants to knock us off because we can just make new stuff and we'll come up with better things that that they can they can copy us after but we'll be the first one with them that's why innovation is is important for us
0: so barware mm-hmm. what's innovative specifically in barware right now
6: that was that was the hardest hardest question because there's it's not quite a product but there's a notion of of barware that has changed there was um an article in the times the the english newspaper that just was talking about how barware is having a renaissance and it's kind of like the end, end station has been reached in mixology. You can only put turmeric with gin once and, like, and then un, un, there comes to a point where you don't want to drink it anymore. So how can you do it? Then you present it in a way where it's appealing for the eye. And that's luckily where, where we would come in. People are now even considering custom barware, custom glassware, like they've had done custom furniture, custom lighting for years, now bars comes, we would want to think about having something specifically for the bar, not just in logo, like in shape and everything.
2: What do you think is the most common misconception the consumer has about the value of original design or creative work?
6: Uh, that it's easy. I don't know. That's the first thing that.
2: That it's easy. That yeah, it's...
6: that designing is easy, and it's it just comes easy, and, and it's like you just why, draw why a picture would, one day. Yeah, and, and why? Why makes would it, it be? And that's it? Yeah. Why would a chair be five hundred bucks? It should be twelve ninety nine at IKEA. Yeah. No. It's, like, well, I'm. You know, I was born in Sweden, so IKEA is. I am IKEA. <laughs> 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 I can. Assemble any IKEA furniture by myself under an hour. <laughs> I'll take that challenge. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but what do you think some ideas are for how we might communicate the value of original design, and that it's not easy to the public? How can we change their perceptions?
6: Well I think it's v- all on video, on your hands, Amanda. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it is. It's it's how you tell. How do you tell the story? I think us designers we're not very good at telling the story. We're really good at making stuff. We're making amazing. We make awesome stuff. sometimes we're not that good at telling the story, and that's why we have Beth. they well, you know, that at least delivers the story, but you just need to be good at good at thinking, even if it's an afterthought, and you make up your story about something. Make a story. like you don't want to just look at a movie, you don't go to the movie to just look at an actor, like there's a story that needs to be behind it.
2: Do you feel that you are transparent with your story? Do you need help to tell your story? well, I'm just wondering so you said designers are good at making cool shit, but yes. not necessarily good at telling the story, but the story is crucial to helping the public understand the value oh, of it yeah, yeah.
6: It's you know a factor of things, but i I think there's we're visually very good like I think we're the product is Somewhat unique, so it's recognizable. Luckily enough, so you can spot the knockoffs easily. That's why we even put the the glass in the logo to be super in your face with it. But I do think like social media is very strong and helpful because there you can quickly, e- quote unquote, easily tell us tell the story that reaches a lot of people. I think sometimes that is the hard part. It's you can probably have a good. Story on a website, you can have a great uh, social media but it's sometimes you don't you don't buy it on social media you you can, but you buy it in stores, and sometimes that is kind of the disconnect as well where you just oh yes, I sold it that's amazing. I made the sale. How can the story live on even though it's it is on the website, it is on the brochure, we have a great catalog, our social media tells somewhat of a story, but it kind of dies in a store that is not able to tell the story, then, of course, you have stores that are amazing at doing that. But I don't know if that was an answer or just words, but I, I think there's, like...
2: <laughs> I think there there was many as many questions in that as there were answers, but I feel you, and I also think that the the ideal goal is that the story lives on with the object, so somebody mm-hmm. can interface with your object at a bar or at a store and already sort of have pieces of the story that they can recall, yeah. that they can share through use.
6: Yeah. You know, I think one thing that we we kind of did, because it sounds like we were selling glassware, the first show trade show that we did to present it was not a restaurant show, not a barware show, if there is such a thing as probably is, um, but it was a gift show. Because what we thought was, how can we, we can't immediately uh, compete with Riedel or Rydell or whatever you know, that's going to be hard to get into a restaurant market immediately Mm -hmm. let's take two glasses that are kind of funky looking, put them in an amazing Tiffany style packaging and sell it as a gift instead, it's not a glass anymore we kind of reinvented it through packaging, that's one way we did it
2: wonderful, thank you so much thank you I'm Barbara Boza,
7: based here in Los Angeles. I'm the Managing Director and Principal of Gensler. I'm also the President of the American Institute of Architects LA chapter. I'm really passionate about interior design. You know, Gensler, we're a design firm. We do architecture, interior design, planning, branding, strategic planning. And I'm just really passionate about being able to impact our communities at many levels. And the idea about really looking at design from a cross-discipline
2: level is why I do this. So from the lens of interior design, how is original design and authentic voices important to the growth and ecosystem of your industry?
7: You know, I think when you look at authenticity, you have to really understand context because what could be ordinary to some could be extraordinary to others. What is important in one community might be quite different in another. So I find that the authenticity is not something that you can put sort of a one size fits all. And so right now we're doing uh, some design work interiors for Debbie Allen. Many of you are familiar with her and we're designing her dance studio. And it's an incredible project because the whole mission is about how do you bring arts to every community, right? And so she definitely grew up in a world where maybe the type of body or the type of color of your skin, it wasn't always accessible. And so how do we begin to look at an authentic approach in terms of the design and the materials to that? So it's really integrated in actually how we approach the project overall in terms of that. And I think the other point is how you also look at the space. We always talk about the physical, whether it's the furniture, the materials, it's now how does technology play into that authentic role. And so it was interesting. We have an example where, There was a a student that wasn't actually allowed in the country due to uh, immigration policy, but it was like, should that still limit what we can do in terms of how we use the space? So technology now is allowing us to teach classes across the world. So that, in in many ways, to me, is in an authentic way of how we're expressing interior design in the space.
2: That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And that sort of speaks to some of the innovations that are happening in your industry as well. Are there any other exciting things that are going on that you think the public should know about?
7: When I go back and look at how we looked at space, there was a time where everybody said, hey, let's look at it from a timeless point of view. So I do a lot of work with JPL NASA. And you might want to say, hey, how's the approach? Look at it from a timeless point of view. In their instances, they're also wanting us to actually help them curate the story. So not finish the story, but help create a basis. And so it's interesting that when I always talk about how to make sure you understand the client's point of view and the client's mindset, if you take NASA, for example, Talk about authentic materials and authentic representation. It's at the core of what they do. As we're designing the space, it has to be true to that. They're trying to make Mars accessible to the public. That's the, the core of what they do. And anything we do, it it has to be purposeful in terms of the materials, in terms of the approach. And so you can't really separate the two. Every material has a specific purpose. And if their purpose is obviously to make Mars accessible to us, I know that sounds like incredibly lofty goal. That is actually how they review when we actually talk about design. And I think it's incredibly important to, to make that correlation. You're designing Mars?
2: That's so rad. <laughs> Did you know
7: that Mars actually has a separate temper- time zone? It's like about 15 minutes off of Earth time. So when the, NASA talks about,
0: talk about space planning, it's a different scale. So. <laughs> So you talked a little bit about materials and accessibility. And, you know, as an interior designer, there's balancing the client's desires and budgets. How can interior designers deal with that, but also stay true to the idea of original and authentic design?
7: What we're seeing a shift now is this idea around quicker, faster, tighter budget, but the idea that what we got to look about is sort of the sustainability of what we're designing. So what we're also finding is that the clients are incredibly educated, or at least I would say they're doing their research. So what I love about what the original is doing is we've got to figure out, besides educating students, educating the client, educating our, ourselves, because what we're finding is the space might turn over at six months, a year. So, for example, another... I always like to put it in the context of an actual projects. So I do a, lot, a ton of work for Netflix. So whether it's here in Hollywood... Or global, and again, their ideas around how do we again make movies, international movies, documentary accessible to anyone. And then, as you can see, the content has also been diversified. And so, where we could spend a lot of time looking at materials, how do we specify it? What we've learned is the wear and tear of how they use it is really gone back to saying no. We got to really look at high quality. They may change it out in six months, but instead of moving it out how do we maybe put it in another in another place and reuse it so the idea is it's sort of this balance between curating the space but also f- finding materials and furniture and the finishes that are going to be able to maybe as a space change that we actually end up using them at other locations
0: life cycle and life sustainability exactly very important and
7: that and so i think that helps with the budget because it is very easy to want to just sort of Here's what it is today, six months later, because they are actually of a culture. If it doesn't work, we're going to change it, because if we wait, we'll be out of business. So that's a mindset, and so it's a different shift for a lot of interior designers to work with.
2: Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to open it up now for questions from the audience. Anybody have a question? I know you do. Come on, in the back.
7: Uh, thank you. This is a really inspiring panel. Um, what, do you, what is your opinion on art building, on art versus original design?
1: We need to talk about originality in a different way. I, as an educator, I actually believe that learning goes through copying. And I want this to be very clear. And I'm going to use another, um, another field so nobody gets upset about this. Painting. Okay. Painting. Uh, something called a still life exercise, you know, the apples and bananas and, and, and the bottles on the table. This has been a timeless exercise for creative people, artists, to learn how to represent reality. The copy of something existing became a benchmark of education of a young student towards a master. And in time, you actually develop your own style, your own ideas, your own concept, but it goes through a level of imitation, learning, and a progress of growth. So I think there is something about originality in the ideas, and there is a originality in terms of the product itself has been developed as an R&D, and then you made the effort to create this, and therefore you want to make this uh, a viable path for a company to be, to be existing in the world. So people that do extraordinary things and put their passion and love and time into something, then they can survive and keep on doing this. If you're not paid for that, you don't have that happening in the world. So creativity, I think, we can talk about it like... <laughs> Sometimes people talk about genius, no? and for centuries, the idea of genius, as we understand it now, is still a quintessential 18th century problem, meaning that there is some God-like thing in you, that, and you are better than anybody else. The idea that creativity and novelty creates a difference, and that is something that either is given by God or from superhuman abilities... I think is a misconceived idea. I think in reality we learn that education, access to tools, and uh, access to med- media is what produces exceptional people. Just um, Genius is democratized right now. I think genius is a collective problem. I think genius now is called genius. I mean, I'm taking one from Brian Eno. The collective genius, we are part of a society that produces originality as a collective issue. So, I am very skeptical when you were thinking cliche about the original creative person. I think we are all participating and we're all part of an ecosystem in which we participate as, you know, we're all different, but we're not all different. It's collective. Yeah. It's a collective problem. So, that's my two cents to the question. I think there are many facets to the problem of originality. There are many cliches into it. So if we're looking at this as an economic model, I understand it, but as an educational model, as how we produce, as a culture, as a humankind knowledge, we stand on each other's shoulders. And that's a very important part of it. Okay.
8: Do we have any more questions? Um, I have a question about education. Um, if this is about originality and it all starts ultimately with children and through education, the appreciation of design, we live in a society, certainly in California, where we're not taught, well, we're not really taught art. We're certainly not taught design in schools. How as we as a collective, can we begin to try and solve that problem?
9: Hmm. I
4: I Thank just you. make chairs. That's a big That's a big problem. You know, I could just tell you as an example in my life with my kids. So as my daughter was growing up, she would travel with me or my whole family would. And one day she was probably seven and she had cut out a little chair. She said, she says, Daddy, will you take this to Mr. Stark and show him my thing, which I, I still have on my counter today. So she's met, you know, Stark and she's met Norman Foster, and we worked on, together on a project with Frank Gehry. So here's this girl in Southern California learning an incredible amount. And she um, got into Stanford, and she studied sustainable design and engineering, and she became a consultant. And she was working at a NBC Studios doing their website, and she, she loved it. She said it was really a challenging job, but it was technology and entertainment, she said, I care about sustainability. And she had gotten her master's in engineering and about, about sustainability. And she, I said, well, do what you love to do. And I said, you know, if you ever want to make chairs, let me know. And she said, I'd love to make chairs. So she's now in product development. And what I realized is I brainwashed her. I mean, I, the whole time I didn't realize it, but it was she loved what I love. And I, see, I think that the responsibility for the kids isn't, our, isn't educators, it's us, it's the parents. So
7: You know, the reason that, that um, resonated with me was, um, it was just a couple of weeks ago, there were every chapter of the American Institute of Architects descended on Capitol Hill, and one of the issues that we were focused on was school safety, right? So somebody could say, you know, the issue around school safety is gun violence. We said, no, it's actually, we've got to look at it holistically from a design solution. So we said, you know what, maybe it starts with a conversation at the school and saying, how should your school work? How do we begin to engage students as part of that process? How they look at the furniture? How do we look at lighting? How do we look at the entrance? How do we look at the connection to the street? And so I think when people realize, hey, I can actually have an impact on my everyday, that's, that's I think becomes a very powerful way in terms of how we begin to bring education and design to to kind of our future leaders those that we want to work for
8: thank you um i believe that art helps you realize that there's no right and wrong and therefore it helps you become a better thinker whether you end up becoming a designer or an artist or a mathematician it stops you being fearful of getting something wrong and the fact that we as educators, choose not to have art in our schools, I think is a real problem. (laughs) Anyway, that's my personal opinion, but...
3: Agreed.
0: (laughs) Thank you. I think Amy and I, having had 80-plus conversations with designers, and I would say, what, 80% of them have been like, I don't even know design was a profession when I started looking into this. And, you know, that's something that, over time, having all these conversations has been something that we... I think we really feel strongly is incredibly important design education in schools and art education in schools. Um, and hopefully, one day, you know, we could do something about that. But what we're doing here is really important because when you look at the idea of original design, knockoffs, blah, 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 all of these things we're talking about here. You know, a lot of it starts with education and no better place to start than at the very beginning of life, right? When people are, when when children are growing up, when they're being exposed to things, when they're learning how how much their parents value an object because it was designed or because it was handed down or the stories behind those objects. And that's the most important thing we can actually do as a collective society, no matter whether you're a designer or who cares what you are. It's about educating our children about the importance of design, not only as a profession, but to respect everything that's been created around them and the people that have made those things. Because then eventually these conversations may never happen in the future because we've all educated our children about the importance of design. Absolutely. And to Greg's
2: point, the the point about brainwashing your children, I I do think it's a very simple thing to do. Like, kids grow up with storybooks, and they know they can be a doctor or a nurse or a fireman. But we need to point out that, like, somebody designed this chair, and somebody made this building, and somebody put thought and energy into what this glass shape is like. So it would hold water, and so that you know, this sippy cup. But but kids just don't understand. They think products just kind of come from somewhere they don't know where they come from but if we just start a dialogue about where things come from then they'll start that curiosity you know the what if the curiosity starts growing in their brain about like oh well i wonder why did they make it like that and then you're off to the races right then then they really start thinking about that as a profession and i think that's even like a half click before we get to institutional education do we, we could be on our soapbox all night long, but we will make sure to wrap this up. Do we have any more questions? I have one. Okay, we do.
10: I'm a designer too, but always I came from a little bit. Um, my when I was growing up, I didn't have a really bare minimum, and then now who I am is very different. So I appreciate design, and then I really like care what we do. But like when we are talking about originality, there's a always a little challenges inside me even as a designer like some people has very minimum in certain country that's where high some how I grew up and even though sometimes I wanted to afford something really nice but sometimes I can I couldn't do it so there's a little challenges and then educating someone is great but it's just it's I think we have to find the right balance, for example, like when you're talking about IKEA, like there is a little appreciation I could afford in terms of the price, but I cannot pay, now I can pay for Vitra or whatever. Like, not whatever, but at least I could, (laughs) one piece of Vitra, for example. (laughs) But it's like uh, there's challenges how I can balance my life. I want to educate people, and I want to educate my clients. So you should have the original pieces, but sometimes it comes down to the price. It's really hard. So I think it's, just, it's, a, it's not like a question, but it's just a little challenges that we have.
2: Sure. And, I mean, even though we're talking about IKEA being very affordable, we're not talking about it not being original,
0: um, or have a place in the ecosystem. Because we all have had a piece of IKEA furniture, you know, in our dorm room or our first apartment. I mean, it absolutely has a place. Some of my favorite original
2: uh, sandals are made from recycled tires. And they're handmade with scraps of leather and recycled tires. And, you know, I, I think that price is a, is a really important Thing to start to be really transparent about when it comes to design I don't think that a lot of people understand why things cost so much and where that money went and I also think that there's a lot of ingenuity that comes from not having money and and making things out of what you have on hand and there's room for all of that in the in the conversation and the education about originality what's hostile about knocking off is that you're kind of harvesting somebody else's intellectual property and then profiting off of it. So you're actually siphoning away profit from a creative endeavor that could become more affordable if it could make some money. So, I mean, as a specifier, then it's our job to know all of the price points and all of the original design and all of those price points so that you have at the ready things that you can pick and, and, and put in that are, that are you know, more available at a lower price point.
9: Other questions? Um, great panel, and I think that um, you know, kudos to the panel because I think you all kind of reflected on each other and expanded on the, the context of what design is and product and the value of, of originality. We're in a world today that, through technology, everyone has the ability to be creative. You know, the world is uh, gravitates towards simplicity and cheap. And we're in a place now where even Nike is all... The, their, their customer can custom can design their product. Mm. You know, how do we uh, balance, as a comp- companies that need to develop product and ha- need that lifespan, to um, a world where change and design is in the hands of individuals. So h- how do we sustain business? Maybe Amanda uh, can respond to that because she's involved, you know, in the kind of the forefront of the public.
3: How how do you sustain business in an infinitely customizable World. future in which the consumer expects to have that kind of latitude? Is that Correct.
9: and the ability to impose themselves on.
3: You. Wow. That's a really interesting really interesting question. <laughs> so it's interesting that you bring up Nike. I had the the good luck to be able to go and tour their latest Culver City uh, location in which they have taken the principles of, um, I believe it's called Kanban. So they have taken this uh, school of thought for uh, moving the various stages of the design into the most efficient way Forward. And so they're using this principle to photograph their product inventory. And so they have created such a precise and meticulous stage of events in which they're moving the object from station to station. And when I say station, I mean camera. So the way that they have it organized is so the object never moves, but it is photographed and captured from every possible scenario. So this is done to, as an approach to this uh, voracious appetite of the consumer to customize and customize and customize. And so their answer to that is, we're going to give you every nano whatever of every element of our product to give you complete mastery over it, because we invite you, we, we wish for you to um, take our product and, and run with it, and we're going to take what you do, and then we're going to take it from there and keep going. So... Um, Another way to put this is that back in the day, I always say this, but people who had my job before would be called editor-in-chief, and so they would be the one that controlled information. Back before the (laughs) ye old days, before the Internet, um, an editor would have access to images and information far, far uh, ahead of everyone else, and so they would control what the audience Uh, Saw and interacted with, and also they could court the appetite. So with the advent of the internet and with the tools that emerge with which people can share not only their feedback, but their their anger and their vigor and their responses, so it no longer is an all-transmit and no-receive conversation. It is a constant loop, um, and everyone is involved. And I believe that through that feedback we can be better. I think that I rely upon uh, the feedback that I garner, um, and I mentioned this earlier, uh, because the tools that exist today, I can see far faster, I can glean far faster what resonates, what is going to touch a nerve, what is going to court what I'm after, which is healthy discourse, I might add. I'm not interested in putting forth ideas that everybody is going to agree with. I'm interested in the conversation, and I would like to be in the position of courting it. So... Again, this comes back to this give and take, this ecosystem that we create between the maker and the consumer. And again, I believe I am an optimist. I'm an optimist and a cynic at the same time, but I choose to believe that the loop of information creates a better society and a better product and a better experience.
0: Thank you for listening. To see images from the evening and learn more about Be Original Americas, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app. Or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And we would love it if you would leave a review on iTunes or give us a rating. It really helps.
2: We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast. Clever is created, produced, and hosted by us, Amy Devers and Jamie Derringer, also known as 2 bde Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk.